Hello and welcome to 1111 with Kirsty Olive. In this episode, I'm going to be interviewing Ariana Zeminski. She is a coach who specifically works with people who have experienced complex trauma. This was a really amazing discussion and I hope that you enjoy it as much as we enjoyed the conversation ourselves. Not only do we dive deep into what it's like to work with clients who've experienced complex trauma and how that differs from say individual traumas. We dive deep into what complex trauma actually is, how it's created, what it consists of, but also we dive deep into our own experiences with complex trauma, how we have experienced them in our own lives and also our own healing journey and what has and hasn't worked for us. Hello and welcome, Ariana. Thank you so much for joining us today. I would love to get you to introduce yourself, first of all. So for everybody listening, we have Ariana Zeminski with us and you are a trauma specialist. Yes. And I would love for you to just share a little bit about, to the women who are listening, what it is that you do. Okay, great. Very excited to be here. So thank you for sharing this time with me. And absolutely, I am a trauma support specialist and I work with people who are adults that are now dealing with the effects of the trauma that they experienced long ago, most often during childhood. I We deal with things that are coming up that are emotional and hold you back from doing what you want to do in life. So things like anxieties, depression, fears that seem to come out of nowhere, and then reactions that you may have in a certain situation that feels really out of proportion. So sometimes we call those triggers or activating events, but somebody says something specific that shouldn't be an issue at all, and you have some kind of a reaction where you get very angry or you shut down or you start crying. And it becomes difficult to keep living your life because these things, they, they seem to come up more frequently and more intensely and, and they're not going away. And these are often signs of uh, complex trauma, which is from childhood. Yeah. I'm really interested to know so when working with complex trauma in particular, what are the differences for you as a kind of provider of this service? What are the differences for you in terms of working with complex trauma and working with, say, more recent trauma or trauma from like a singular event or adulthood rather than yes. that last trauma you were talking about? There's actually quite a significant difference. So if you have uh, what's called acute trauma. So a single trauma event, if, you know, some horrible things happens and you're, you're robbed, you know, while walking back to your car at the grocery store at night, that event can be dealt with usually fairly quickly. There are different therapies, uh, different ways of addressing the trauma that's kind of sunk into your body. And you can clear that and get on with your life. The trauma that happened during childhood is often what we call small T trauma or, or uh, smaller events. So perhaps as a child, you were ignored or your parents spoke to you in dismissive ways saying your feelings don't matter or your your wants and needs don't matter or they didn't take care of you 
the way that you actually needed. Perhaps they didn't cuddle with you or read you a bedtime story or tuck you in at night. A lot of these things we don't even see as an issue, but they build up and they become they become significant when we're older. So it's a different approach. It's a very different approach to treating complex trauma because you need to sink. There's, there's more of it in you, so to speak. It's part of your system. It's part of how your body was created growing up. It's part of your nervous system, which is where the effects of trauma basically live. Yeah. When you're an adult and you have a single event, it's, it's usually a lot easier to deal with a yeah. lot more quick. As, as you're saying that I'm thinking as well say an event that happens as an adult in a singular event you're more likely to remember that and to know what that is and where this trauma is coming from whereas the complex trauma there's probably a lot of those events that you don't actually remember or even know that happened exactly and before the generally speaking before the age of three you're not going to have any type of memory because the brain doesn't store memory that young but what's interesting is your body and your nervous system will remember things from back then. So if you were ignored as a baby, your body and your brain formed in a certain way to compensate for not getting its basic needs met, but you won't have a conscious memory of it. You'll have this emotional feeling sense of it. Yeah, absolutely. And um, I mean, your body responds, even if you're not aware of what's happening and that's often why I mean I know in my own experience that is what led to me having a breakdown and panic attacks in my early 20s um, and nice. I ended up suffering with dissociation panic disorder and stuff like that because um, I mean I had thought for a number of years that like everything was fine you know <laughs> uh, and it, it wasn't and right. it took for that to begin to happen you know it wasn't mentally it was actually physically my body began right. to kind of scream at me, you know, to be yes. like, there's something that needs to be healed. Yeah, you're not listening. You're not fixing this. And all of this stuff began to really come to the surface. And it was interesting how at the time I really realized that intelligence of my mm -hmm. body and that it doesn't matter whether I consciously was even aware because a lot of the stuff that came up afterwards at the time, I wasn't even aware that maybe what had happened to me in childhood was abuse. Right. I, I kind of didn't realize that. I knew that it had happened, but I didn't know that it was abuse. But it's as if mm -hmm. my body knew, you know, because my body began kind of reacting uh, very strongly to that. Yeah. And so um, what you're explaining there about it being stored in the nervous system in the body is yeah. definitely something that I felt and experienced right in my own life and I know that a lot of the women who will be listening to this podcast as well can really resonate with that um I mean I do a lot of work around you know the womb area mm -hmm. and yes. with the nervous system and stuff around this work but it's interesting to hear from yourself yeah how you describe that and you know even at such a young age when it starts mm -hmm. Yeah. It, I mean, there are, there's research now showing it starts when you're in the womb because if the mother is stressed, then all the stress hormones and stress chemicals are going into the baby as well. And there's, you know, when you think of how it affects the nervous system, uh, there are probably a lot of moms out there or a lot of people who have worked with kids and babies. And you know, when a baby is screaming and crying, they're in great distress. 
And the best remedy is to you pick the baby up and you may swaddle the baby, you comfort them, you, you're teaching the baby how to soothe him or herself. It's it's a something we pass on to the next generation. But if you were a crying baby and nobody came and picked you up and soothed you, then you're on high alert now. Your your body is learning, your nervous system is learning. Well, I better be careful because nobody's coming to get me and the world is a scary place. I'm feeling very scared and nobody's helping me. And you don't think those thoughts and words, it's a feeling and that's how your brain can develop. I'm really interested to know from what you've just said. I know you mentioned at that young age, we're really storing it all in the body because we're not having the, the thoughts to understand it or to connect it, but we're actually feeling it in the nervous system. Mm-hmm. So at what age is it that we begin to maybe have conscious thoughts about what's happening rather than just kind of experiencing it in the body? So you, are you saying like, at what point are we aware of abuse or at what point are we reflecting on our past? Um, not necessarily that it's abuse, because for me, I know that I didn't even realize that what I had experienced was abuse until right. I was in my early 20s. But maybe at what age as a child is it that we maybe even start to think the simple things like, say, if we're getting ignored by a parent, maybe we mm-hmm. think, oh, they don't love me rather than just having the feeling is that something that happens or is it always just maybe the feeling of that happening the feeling is pretty predominant because you you don't i think that the the way the trauma sinks in you don't have the conscious thought of you know oh my my loving my parent who should be loving and caring is ignoring me and you know staring at the tv or is unavailable you're not thinking that because child, uh, as a child, you're egocentric. You're thinking about yourself. Oh, I must be doing something wrong. This is my fault. I should be a better, I should be more perfect. I should be a better child. I should get better grades. Oh, look, when I get good grades, I get attention. Or or when I get bad grades, I get attention. Or when I, when I misbehave, I get attention. And it's not this conscious thought. It becomes a way of behaving. Yeah. So generally as children, we don't, we don't see that it's somebody else like you were saying, you don't realize there's, emo- especially emotional abuse, but even physical abuse, a lot of times it just seems like that's just the way life is. Yeah. Wow. And so at what age um, do we maybe begin to like have this sense of, like what, what age do we begin to have this kind of sense of awareness just about what's maybe going on in the world? Or even, you know, sometimes I remember me from a young age, I always had this like sense of like, there's an injustice, mm-hmm. you know, but I just, I didn't know what that injustice was. Like, I didn't know, um, like, I didn't know what was wrong. Mm-hmm. I just knew that something something's not right about this. Something's not right in this house. Something's not right in this home. Well, I didn't know what it was. Right. That that can happen at any age. I think it's very individual. Yeah. And sometimes it's, you know, people just say, you know, my family's a mess. I'm out of here. And and they may be 13 or they may be 18 or they may be five. It's really hard to say. Yeah. And it depends on the dynamics. Sometimes if you have an older sibling, 
for example, who is the the rebel, you know, and we put these labels, we get we get stuck in these labels and these roles. And this is how dysfunctional families work, different roles. So you have an, an older child, perhaps, who's the rebel, and then you have the younger child who's the the perfectionist straight A student because that's how this family dynamic fits. This is how everybody stays, you know, safe. And you're not aware that you're doing this. The awareness comes in often, I think, just way later in life. So even even becoming aware in your 20s is miraculous because I mean, that that was that was due to a lot of factors. You know, that was due to a really abusive relationship that led to what I call like my breakthrough. You know, it was a breakdown, but a breakthrough at the same time. and it was at that point where I began to realize like, oh, this is happening because of what's happened to me in childhood, you know, and that's when I began to kind of understand and to make that connection. But yes. if it wasn't for that, like really abusive relationship that I was in at that time, um, not to give any kind of gratitude or anything towards it, but if it wasn't for that, um, that would have just continued on you know and yeah and yeah yeah it can continue until there's some type of breaking point or breakdown and or somebody just realizes enough I I don't want these why am I having panic attacks or why is this relationship failing why am I you know constantly losing my cool as a mom when all I want to do is be the best mom and love my children why is that so difficult and Why am I so overwhelmed? <laughs> you find in your line of work from the people that you talk to, because I know my, obviously my situation was maybe a bit more extreme, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and I mean, I had a complete mental breakdown. I was diagnosed with CPTSD, panic disorder, agoraphobia, dissociation. And I was in my early twenties. I was in a foreign country on my own without any family. I was disconnected from my family and so I remember like having those exact thoughts that you just said you know like something has to change here I will not tolerate this I this will not be my life was Mm -hmm. the kind of reoccurring thought I kept having I was like I am not let I'm 21 years old I'm not letting this be the rest of my life I have to radically kind of change but I know that in my situation it was by an extreme situation and for a lot of women it 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 might not be that extreme or even to point out that for a lot of women even the childhood situation because a lot of the things that you were mentioning like mine yes was abuse but a lot of the things you were mentioning were just everyday occurrences in a household yes. that can be that can create that type of trauma or can create those core wounds or beliefs but right. they're not always like intentional they're not always abusive they're not always malicious or nasty Mm -hmm. it's just things that could happen in a household where maybe one parent is very busy working in an office all the time so is very tired when they get home and they don't have time for the child and if this repeats right then that child is going to maybe create that core wound of like abandonment or I'm not good enough yeah Yes. And a lot of times, so what you're describing there, the parents can have the best of intentions. They can, and they can think they're doing a great job parenting. 
And it can also be part of the current parenting culture of the time. Yeah. You know, back when I was growing up, it was very common for, you know, I, I think for the, the dads to feel like, well, my role is to earn money, not to hang out with my kids. Exactly. And so that's normalized. And we, we were the, the latchkey generation where a lot of times both parents were working. The children would come home from school by yourself and you're on your own until five or six o'clock at night. And depending on what your need is, so everybody's different. So for some kids growing up, that might be like, I'm cool. This is great. And others might say, you know, they're, they're, and, and it's again, it's not like you're saying this consciously, like I need my parents around, but the the nervous system needs that the the mind needs that the soul needs that nurturing and if it's not there that's when the 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 there's these core beliefs you know really have kind of the soil to grow out of into something larger things like i don't matter i'm invisible you know they just they take root and they grow and nothing is countering that during these really important developmental years and again the parents can have the best of intentions and it may look normal from the outside. And that is what is so deceptive. You have to really sink into your own feelings, your own understanding and, and accept a lot of what might be really uncomfortable, which is like, you know, I, I, I love my parents. I think I love them. I think they love me. Why do I, why am I so messed up? Yeah. I, it's really interesting because Obviously, for me personally, and for I mean, for a lot of my clients, they have had, you know, these abusive situations. But then also, I find that with, say, myself or with those clients, it's almost easier for them to understand that they have trauma and these core wounds because it's like, oh well, I've, I've been abused, you know. So right. yes, of course I do. But then for the rest of the women who maybe say like, oh, but no, I had a really, really loving family and my mom's amazing, my dad's amazing, I had a great childhood. It, yeah. It's almost as if it's more difficult yes. for them because right. they, they don't have this knowledge of like something bad happened to me. Right. You know, what's kind of interesting is Oftentimes I'll be talking to somebody just about what I do, not a client or a potential client. And they say, what do you do exactly? And I describe complex trauma and childhood and all of that. And they say, oh, they say, well, now you've got me thinking, you know, maybe I've got some of that. And it's because their childhood didn't look abusive from the outside. But if there's neglect or actual abandonment, then then it is it, it can have those emotional scars on the inside. And I'd love to hear from you as well on, because this is something that I, I find that I have difficulty explaining this. Mm -hmm. So I'd love to know how you would explain or talk about this, but obviously it's not, I mean, the, the way that we will react to it or experience it as an adult maybe the depth of those core wounds or beliefs doesn't necessarily correlate to the level of the trauma or abuse. So what I found is that there's some women who maybe have had a really abusive traumatic childhood, but mm -hmm. they've maybe handled it 
differently to somebody who maybe thinks, oh, no, I had a great childhood. I don't have any trauma. But they may be not handling it. Um, I don't want to say as well because I don't want to put that maybe <laughs> um, on them. But do you know what I'm trying to say? Yes. Yeah. yeah I'd love to know from you on that because I find I know what I'm saying in my head, but I can't yeah. get it out. Well, it's very individual is what it comes down to. And it's it speaks to the nature versus nurture discussion as well. Trauma is imprinted in the nervous system as far as the complex trauma that that you experienced in childhood and affects you as an adult. The reason why you react as an adult, like you were saying, panic attacks, dissociation, those are all those are all nervous system responses. They're actually trying to keep you safe. And those are learned responses from childhood. That's how your nervous system is, and that's how it developed in the environment that you grew up in. If you had a different nervous system growing up in the same environment, you would have a different reaction. If you had some kind of incredibly resilient nervous system that and and you could bounce back from the different traumas you experienced, then you know, in your early 20s, you might have walked into a relationship said hey this is abusive i recognize this and and your body would have you know um it would have calmed down it would have said okay this isn't rational i'm out of here versus the way that your nervous system was shaped and that's an extreme example typically most most of us have nervous systems that are impressionable right when we're growing up but depending on you know how how resilient how sensitive a nervous system is I find, for example, I, I'm pretty sure I fall into the highly sensitive person category, which means my nervous system is is kind of high key. It's it's sensitive. And growing up in a an environment where I wasn't I didn't get all of the attention that I needed, it was very uh, had a, it was traumatizing to my nervous system. But to somebody else, it might not have had that effect if their nervous system were different. I I'm glad I asked you that question now because um, that makes perfect sense. And it actually brings up another question for me. So do you think that there could be, for example, if there is a child who maybe has at least one parent in the household mm-hmm. who can maybe regulate with them and connect with them, yes, even if they're experiencing maybe, you know, trauma or abuse or situations elsewhere, do you think the fact that they have like one solid parent that can help them to regulate and work with their own experience, their own nervous system in a healthy way as a child, do you think that that could have a really big impact? Oh, yes, absolutely. That's that's a fact. And when it comes to healing, it's the same thing. You need one solid grounded person What's happening when you're healing is your nervous system is attuning to the other person's nervous system. They can handle your level of distress. And so when your distress comes up, your nervous system, your your eyes, your body, you're seeing the other person being calm and your nervous system is like, oh, I don't have to freak out about this. Okay, that's okay. So when that happens as a child, in my situation, my parents were very dysregulated. So they were um, shut down or over over anxious, over emotional. I did not have emotional stability from them. However, I had a grandparent, a grandmother, and she was what I what I call. She was the one who saved me emotionally. She was the emotional heart of my childhood, 
And she was the one who picked me up. I have pictures of her holding me when I was a baby. I remember sitting on her lap. She sang me stories at bedtime. She did all of those maternal things. She just had this really big heart. And my parents just weren't capable of that, no matter how much they tried and how much they wanted to. She was. And that one, so that is my one person. And this is this is not just my experience. This is also in, you know, you take a parenting class. You look in uh, the the attachment parenting books, and it all comes down to a child needs one adult figure that they can strongly attach to who will allow them to develop, you know, as much as they can, considering all the other variables around them, it will help them stay safe and grounded. So it doesn't necessarily have to be a parent for that. Absolutely not. No, it can even be somebody outside of the family. It just happened to be my grandmother, but it could be uh, if there's a neighbor and you, you're always at your neighbor's house and they become like your second mom or something like that. These are people that we really rely on emotionally. And then the, the nervous system, right on that subconscious level, this is again, trauma is stored in, in the nervous system. We see, okay, we're safe here. We're always looking for safety. The nervous system, we need to know it's a safe world and somebody who can share that with us allows us to feel safer and so um maybe kind of moving up to like dealing with this as an adult who's maybe becoming aware of these things um obviously from my own experience and it sounds like from your experience as well we know what that feels like to go through that very dysregulated Mm -hmm state as an adult um, and then begin that healing journey so I'd love to know from you um first of all I mean for me obviously as I said it was very extreme it was panic attacks and stuff but not everybody comes to healing or comes to yourself based off such extreme um kind of symptoms so what is it like what are things maybe that when people come to you is it just kind of everyday things that they're dealing with and that you help them to understand that there's deeper layer yeah. of that? Yeah. So the first the first step in healing really is the, the courage to recognize that something's off and you're not able to live the life the way you want. Or your partner is pointing out things like every time we try to have a discussion, you're you're shutting down or you're falling apart and we need to be able to talk about things. Or like I said, you might notice like a overreacting, you know, as a parent and trying to figure out, you know, what do I do? So the first step really is saying something's off. And like you said, you had more extreme examples, but we know when something's not quite right. I mean, I I can remember thinking, you know, why am I so broken? And I'm sitting on the stairs in the middle of the night crying. And I'm like, I don't think other people do this. What's wrong with me? And in my case, I, I happened, I almost stumbled upon the opportunity for healing. Um, but not everybody has that. Everybody has a different, a different way that they come to healing. And I really think it's what your, your almost your, your path in life brings you to. And then the, the next step really is connecting. You need to be able to connect again with at least one person. And that is the basis of now you start exploring what are the healing options for me? What's going to work? And you may have to try different things, but it's so important to establish a connection first with a person who's safe and who can handle being in your distress. 
basically, because you're going to show up distressed and they're going to be like, hey, that's cool. You're here. I'm here. We're good. And um, that's 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 a super without that, you can't you can't really move forward. And uh, and th for that person who's safe, can that person who's safe be, for example, like a therapist? Yes. Um, yep. Or like yourself. It doesn't have to yes. be on a personal level. Because I know, yeah. you know, um, for a lot of women, they might not have the reason why they this is happening in the first place is that maybe they don't have a safe person in their lives. Right. So for them to know that that safe person can actually be yourself or their therapist. Right. And that's why it goes back to that first that first step of, of having the courage. Sometimes you have to seek out the safe person. It's very scary to make the call sometimes. It's not always a therapist because uh, some and, and some therapists are great and some therapists just aren't the right fit. Yeah. So I've had in the past, I've had probably a dozen therapists before I found the right one. You know, and everybody offers a little something, but there was really only one that that had what I needed. Yeah. And uh, it's it's very personal, but that's that's the that's the, the basis of starting. Yeah. And I think what's really important as well, and I love that we're having this discussion because I do think it's really important for anybody who is like seeking out therapy or healing or anything like that. For me, one thing that I found, because I wasn't aware of any of this at the time, and so I didn't realize that maybe some of the therapists that I was trying, it they maybe didn't understand as much about complex trauma mm -hmm. as what I needed. But I didn't know that at the time, you know. So I think us having this discussion is really powerful because then people might realize like, oh, this is why it's not working for me or this is why and um, this is what I need to do. Maybe I need to look at somebody who can help me with complex trauma yes. rather than what I'm experiencing right now in the yes because and it's very common for therapists not to understand or not to be trained to understand I should say uh about com what complex trauma is and how how it kind of presents in adulthood and what the childhood the corresponding childhood look looked like or what the the nuances of that are mm -hmm. and in my case the therapist that I that I've ultimately found healing with that's basically his one of his expertise so my childhood made perfect sense to him in the sense of this is where trauma comes from wow. and one thing as well that I'd like to ask you about because so for any women who maybe are like initiating this process at the moment or they're finding the courage to reach out to somebody I remember in the beginning for me, so when I first started going to a therapist and I was recommended to go to her by somebody, actually a colleague in my work, it took a long time for me to feel like this room is my safe space and mm -hmm. this therapist is my safe person. Like that was quite a long and painful journey for me to get to that point. And yeah. I will admit that for the first even few months, I hated being there. I hated being in that room. I hated having these conversations. I even hated her sometimes because I'd be like, she's making me 
react or she's making me say things that I don't want to say, you know. Um, and so it took a long time for me to actually feel safe with her, which I'm realizing now is kind of a bit of a problem, you know, because if yes. we need somebody to be our safe person so that we can heal, but we are reacting so strongly that we struggle to feel safe and that's a long process. Mm -hmm. How can anybody that's listening, how can they kind of get there or get through that? Yeah. Uh, I'm guessing it's probably the same way that you might have done it, which is there's this little voice in your head that says, I'm I'm scared, but I'm going to do it anyways because I need this. So basically when I, when I was in the thick of healing for my work, uh, the work that I did on healing, every drive to my therapist's office, I was sweating and probably crying a little bit or not, or a lot and just knowing I'm going back into the lion's den, but I have to do this. I'm going back into the lion's den, but I have to do this. And I could see incremental improvements you know, little, just very little one at, one at a time. And that's how, that was another sign that I was doing something right versus other therapists where I wasn't seeing that type of improvement. And the ones that are going to challenge you just a little bit, that's what's going to help you. Whether it's, again, whether it's a therapist or someone like me doing trauma support or whatever type of, you know, healer you find, it has to challenge you slightly, I think. Or it's just, you're just um, kind of finding relief in the moment, but maybe not doing the deep work that will last a lifetime. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I remember from my experiences that there was days I'd be, you know, sitting in, in therapy and I'd be like really projecting <laughs> onto, onto um, my therapist because she was a woman and I you know my childhood experiences were with my mother so mm -hmm. I was really kind of projecting um a lot onto my therapist um but I remember that you know she she definitely did challenge me and I love the way you described it like it feels like going into the lion's den sometimes yes. you know? and um I remember kind of going into to therapy and for a long time I would stare at my knee you know, I'd mm -hmm. never look at her face. I'd never even look in her direction. I'd just talk to my knee for the entire time. And I'd, I I remember kind of, um, there was there was kind of one period in particular where she was kind of trying to get me to admit that I was angry, you know, but I was like this kind of soft and gentle, like, no, I would, I would never be angry, you know. <laughs> um, and I remember kind of leaving a few times and and asking myself like she's trying to like is she trying to antagonize me in there you know like what's actually happening and like really yeah. kind of thinking about it and um, and eventually you know there was a time where I did get angry and I was like well yeah I'm angry and she's like <sighs> and I like then it was at that point that I realized kind of what would been what had been happening but mm -hmm. to keep going back yeah. Even though I knew like that this feels horrible and is she antagonizing and asking all these questions and projecting onto her, but to choose to keep going back, it is a really challenging thing. Like yes. whether it's a therapist or a healer or a trauma specialist, it definitely does take a lot of 
courage or in my case I don't even feel like it was courage it was just desperation yeah 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 it was just like that is a driving force and motivating factor please just somebody help me you know right yeah yeah absolutely and yet even even with that desperation not everybody would seek an answer so you still give yourself credit for having the courage to go in and face it every day or, or every week or whatever the routine was, because sometimes it's people, some people still aren't ready for that. And the answer becomes, you know, running further away. And that's where this is often where addictions come in or uh, different, different types of ways of just managing this distress. And it can be anything, you know, it can be uh, a shopping addiction, a gambling addiction, a substance use disorder, any of these, because we're saying all of these things are coming up and I'm not ready to face it. And I, I need to still manage my, I need to move forward in life somehow. And it, a lot of this is unconscious and then it becomes a pattern and a behavior and it can set in. And that's where, you know, but we all, we're all trying to survive and, and succeed and grow. So there's never any there's never any judgment on when you're ready to face your past or the depths of what's going on inside. And it's often a slow journey. Like you were saying, you know, for many months, you you just look down, you couldn't even make eye contact. That's how we start out. There's the, the shame is unbelievable. So to go in and face it, it is courage. That's what takes you there. It can be desperation. Uh, but also the courage to say, I need to heal and not try to run or avoid. Yeah. Or once the therapy starts or the, the the healing work starts, to continue with it and go back. Something that's kind of coming to mind for me as we're discussing this, um, and it really ties in with what you were talking about, the nervous system and with my own experience, is the saying, you have to feel it to heal it. Mm-hmm. and. Yeah. So that's something that I always look back on is that even though when going to therapy, I just felt for a long time before feeling any relief, I just felt like this is the worst thing ever. Like this is horrible, you know? And I, like you said, the reason I was looking at my knee is because I just felt this deep, deep shame when I was sitting and I was like, she's looking like right at me and asking me these questions and I'm having to be vulnerable and tell her the truth and it really really brought up this like deep deep level of shame to the point where like I could feel it in my body you know Mm -hmm. like all over my body in my skin and in my cells and so one thing maybe is it could be really powerful to know like going into these healing experiences, for example, with yourself or other methods of trauma healing is to maybe have that awareness that you need to feel it in order to heal it, you know, because if you, like, up until that point, I didn't know that I had shame. And then all of a sudden, it's not just shame, like, this is something else entirely that was in consuming my entire body, you know, right. I had to actually feel and experience that in my body and in my nervous system as an adult 
mm-hmm. to be able to realize like, oh shit, this is what I've been carrying around in my body yeah. for my entire life. Yes, absolutely. And that, so when you experience that part of the healing journey, you had already gone through like the first the first couple steps, right? Which is saying there's a problem here. So your thinking brain was able to come online because there's the thinking brain and there's the emotional brain. And and we're trying to get them to talk to each other. So the thinking brain said, okay, there's a, there's an issue here. I'm going to go to therapy every week. And that's that actually preceded the fact of like, oh, now I have to feel everything. And so, yes, we go there, right? So that's like the first step. And, and we, we look back and say, okay, there's a problem again, or that's part of the thinking saying, yes, there, there's a problem in, in the past. And then you, you, you start to realize I'm going to have to feel all this. And there's something called distress tolerance, which is the ability to which you can feel distress, how much distress you can feel, because whether whatever the, the feeling is, the general term for it, you know, is it's, it's uncomfortable, it's distress. It can be anxiety or um, it can be an emotional shutdown. It can be uh, rage. We don't want to feel it. And so we have to increase our ability to tolerate these. And it's absolutely what comes up in the body, as you were describing. You could feel it in your arms. You know, I would always feel it in my my jaw and my stomach and, you know, my shoulders. It comes up in different parts of the body and connecting to those bodily sensations is part of healing as well. So it is, it's about that feeling, feel to heal as part of it. But I couple that also with the ability, increasing the ability little by little to tolerate the distress and tolerate the uncomfortable body sensations. Yeah. And the way that you've described that, like, you know, building your ability to tolerate it. I mean, that totally makes sense to me because on my journey as I said it started with the panic attacks and the dissociation and stuff but at that point I I wasn't feeling any of the shame or the pain or anything I was just experiencing the the dissociation mm-hmm. and the dissociate dissociation got so bad that I mean there was a point where I was even like waking up in the middle of the night like scratching things Mm-hmm. as if like to bring some sensation into my fingertips you know because my full body felt just like this out of body experience all of the time and so I was unconsciously like just kind of scraping at things to be like am I here am I in my body like can I feel in my fingertips um and so going to therapy and feeling all of that stuff coming into the body which I had obviously been pushing out or pushing down or pushing away for so long and dissociating from it because I couldn't tolerate it yep and then through the therapy I was able to begin to to tolerate and to feel that again and to experience that again and which sounds pretty horrendous Mm -hmm. it is yeah it, it obviously was very healing for me and now I'm able to feel like not only the depth of bad emotions or what we'd call or think of as bad emotions, but also all of the beautiful emotions that I had Absolutely. also been pushing away from experiencing as well. Yeah. So my my experience of what you're describing is, you know, the, the emotions coming out. 
I, I came to, after a while, I came to call it emotional vomiting and slow motion. Because, you know, if you're, if you're sick and you throw up, you feel better after. But the actual process of throwing up is awful. It's no fun. And so there's all this emotion, unprocessed emotion and distress and everything going on inside of you. And through these healing modalities, right, these healing methods, whatever's working, you're, you're feeling it, but you're not just feeling it. And, and it's not like you're bringing it up to keep feeling it perpetually for the rest of your life. You're kind of feeling it out of your body. You're feeling it on the way out. And that's why to me, it felt like it was emotional vomiting and it was slow. So it took a while, like you were saying, it takes all of these sessions and all of this time. And you get to this point where you're like, you know, there's a lot now that's out that used to be in and boy, do I feel better. I mean, I always kind of talk to and share in my community and, and make a joke almost, but I can laugh about it now. But it obviously wasn't funny at the time, but that there was a period through that when I was experiencing maybe that emotional vomiting where I just cried for like nine months, nonstop, yes. continuous. I'd be walking into Tesco's crying, walking down the street crying, like everything, you know, just nonstop. And for ages, it felt like just this despair. But when I began to come out the other side of that, even though it felt like it was a very, very long time, and I would think to myself, like, am I ever going to be able to stop crying? But when I came out the other side of that, it really was like this yeah. cloud had yes. lifted. And now when I think back on it, I'm like, that was an entire lifetime of tears that I had held in. And now that I had mm -hmm. learned how to come back into my body and to feel safe in my body and to be present in my body, I was now beginning to experience and release all of these emotions that I had yeah. held down. Yeah, there are different phases to healing. So like you described, like the, and everybody's different, but that's like the crying phase, right? Where all of a sudden we're, we're grieving too. We're crying the tears we didn't shed then, but we're also grieving the life we didn't have. And that's often unexpected for people. Um, there's an anger. I went, it sounds like you tapped into your anger and I can remember getting very angry for, I don't know, a few months. And I mean, it was kind of crazy because all of a sudden I would be like, wait, this person should have done this and this and not that. And I would write them an email and they're like, uh, what do you need? It's sure. No problem. You know, they weren't, there was no malice, but I hadn't. I didn't stop and ask first. I, you know, I, I jumped the gun and then I realized, okay, this is the anger stuff. It's okay. <laughs> don't really need to be angry at this person. This is still, I'm still processing out my own, my own anger, but it was, I, I had to, I had to learn how to use anger. Yeah. I and mean, that's I what it was. Especially, I mean, I don't know about yourself, but for me, my work is just primarily working with women. And mm -hmm. I find that, I mean, on my own journey, I know, but also for the women that I work with, ang the anger part of healing is usually the most difficult part because yeah. as women, we maybe are conditioned to believe that we need to, like, be a certain way. And, like, an angry woman is not in line with maybe what we think we should be as a woman. Mm -hmm. um, and I remember for me, you know, it 
really took a lot of um, very skilled digging from my therapist to get me to finally admit or even feel that I was angry because like I wasn't lying to her and saying yeah. like intentionally saying no I'm not angry like I genuinely was like no I'm not angry like I'm just sad you know and then I'm thinking like why the f- she antagonizing me you know and um, but eventually when after many many sessions when that anger did come to the surface um I remember it being followed by like that deep shame again you know and then realizing like you know through my therapist kind of talking to me about this but like realizing that why do I feel shame around being angry about something that happened to me that I had no control over like I'm allowed to be angry about that yeah no I deserve to be angry about that um and there's there's nothing wrong with that there's nothing unladylike about that for me I think it was very much a sense of feeling like maybe by like showing my anger that I wasn't in control or I was like losing control which was a big big fear for me um so I'd love to know maybe what can you say around that for any women who maybe Mm -hmm. are experiencing that same thing with anger maybe like an unwillingness or maybe even just they don't know what to do with their anger they don't know when they feel angry they just don't know like oh what do I do now so they maybe shut it down right Another thing that can come up with anger too is if you have uh, abandonment issues, you're afraid if you get angry, you'll be abandoned. So there's a lot intertwined with anger. And it's, it's I think one of the most important things is having a, a safe place to express your anger, just to talk about it. And again, that's where having a, a safe person is oftentimes the place to go to. I did, when I was going through anger, uh, my own anger, I just remember like playing music about you know just I don't know what to call it self-righteousness or you know just anyone who was saying you did me wrong I'm out of here kind of a thing or to feel it so to feel the anger if you're not comfortable putting it out in the world sit with it yourself express it yourself so what another step is uh in the healing process and you probably have experienced this too is self-expression And again, that's different for everybody. It can be art, it can be writing, it can be dancing, it can be, you know, um, hiking, it can be there, there's some, there are different forms of self-expression. And it's not, it's not the type of thing where you're trying to run away from your feelings. It's an expression of the feelings as you work through them and a very self-aware expression. So I'm listening, you know, my, my experience of going through anger was, tuning into this music and just really feeling it. And, and I'm a dancer too. I like to, I mean, not professionally or anything, but I love to dance. So I'm dancing to this music. There's nobody else around. You know, I don't, I don't need, uh, I don't need to go. I can't go back in time and tell the people that I'm angry at that, you know, my, my mother was mentally ill, so I couldn't tell her, mom, I'm mad at you. And my dad was, far away and and they're both completely disconnected so you feel like with anger you want to you want to make things just you want justice but it's not about them it's about your relationship with your anger what's beneath it and slowly getting 
comfortable with it because it's going to bring up exactly like you were saying it doesn't it doesn't align with your identity of how perhaps how how women should behave or in my case it was more if i'm angry i'll be abandoned and it was very scary to feel anger and then as you get comfortable feeling it you start to realize how you can use it so anger comes up in a healthy way when somebody has crossed a boundary the purpose of anger is then or one of the purposes of anger is say okay somebody crossed a boundary that's i don't like it that's that's not cool and you say what you think to yourself what should the boundary be and then you explain to the other person what it should be in a in a manner that's not from dysregulated anger it's a skill so it's a it's a tool it's a skill and it just takes time because chances are we we didn't get to use anger or we went into rage instead of anger uh you know when we were younger and learning how to have access use express understand healthy anger is a process and it's very important it's very very healthy yeah and it's I mean, so powerful as well. I mean, hearing you say that makes me, you know, think like, why isn't this something that we are taught in school, you know, like how to deal with and connect to and to process and to use our anger in the right way, you know, because I remember, and it was when you said that turns into rage, I remember being quite young and maybe around like eight to 10 years. And I mean, I didn't have anyone to I I didn't have a safe person you know Mm -hmm. and I was experiencing what was anger and then rage which now I recognize that but for a long time I kind of didn't realize but I didn't know what to do when I'd be feeling that way and so I would often wait until the house was empty and I'd storm around the house stamping my feet and screaming and like banging on the walls and stamping my feet, you know? And so I was labeled as like an ADHD Mm -hmm. problem child, you know, because I would like go into these fits of rage and I'd start screaming and banging on the walls. And, but I just, I didn't, I was feeling obviously as a child who doesn't understand feeling so angry about what was happening to me but not having any safe place to express that. There was nobody to tell, there was nothing could be done. And I hadn't been taught what to do when I felt angry and it was so much anger that I was like, okay, well, I'm just gonna stab my feet and scream, you know? Right. Yeah, you're just finding the safe way to express it that yeah. you could, which is probably healthier than keeping it inside. Yeah, exactly. But it's it's interesting, like as you learn about this stuff um on your healing journey, it's interesting when you think back to like events when you were younger and you're like, oh, this makes sense now. Mm-hmm. You know, because right. I mean for a long time, it's funny because even say sitting in therapy and my therapist's asking, like, have you ever been an angry person? Are you angry? No, no. And yet <laughs> You know, as a child, I was screaming and banging and kicking and all of these things. But in therapy, I'm like, no, I've never been angry. You know, interesting. <laughs> yeah, it's interesting. Did you not recall it at the time, or were you just uncomfortable sharing? 
no, I just, I don't think I recalled it or I just didn't make the connection even that that was anger. I just was like, oh yeah, that was me as a kid, you know? Um, And it's only kind of maybe once I've like really looked back or learned more or talked about this more that I realized like, oh, oh wow, that was anger. You know, that's what I was experiencing, but I didn't know what to do with it. Right. And it's interesting that because I always found it's interesting that, and I don't think people who haven't experienced what I'm saying can really understand, but the fact that you can like not realize that something is like maybe abusive or even that something like it's, it's totally obvious that kicking and banging walls and screaming at the top of your lungs is anger. I mean, that's obvious to me now, mm-hmm. but that wasn't obvious to me for a very, very long time. Like I wasn't aware of that. Just yeah. like the same as I didn't realize that a lot of things that had happened to me were abuse. I like yeah. I didn't know that for a very, very long time. And yeah. it's I think that it's something that I mean, I remember thinking maybe when I was in my teens or something, you know, like, why do women stay in abusive relationships? Like Mm-hmm. they just leave like um now I understand that you know but at the time I didn't and I think it's really interesting to and really important for any women listening to know that yeah as you grow on your healing journey you will understand things mm-hmm. that have happened in your past in a different way and you will continue to grow and to learn deeper truths about things it's almost like a journey of like uncovering and understanding at a deeper level yeah and the the part about when you can look at a relationship from the outside and say oh that's an abusive relationship why doesn't that person just leave versus when you're in it when when it's your emotional well-being at stake you're doing the absolute best that you can and that is something that is so, I think that's something that's very important for women to hear too, that we understand you're doing the best that you can and you simply want to keep doing better. Yeah. And nobody's going to say, you know, no no decent healer is going to come up and say, oh, you need to leave this abusive relationship immediately. I mean, if there's physical danger, that's different. But if it's an emotionally abusive or emotionally uh, imperfect situation, it's not, it's not that, I guess what I'm trying to say is it's a journey, like you're saying, to come to that place of realization, understanding of what is emotionally healthy and what is not emotionally healthy and to get that realization and then to say, oh, now I have the strength to leave an emotionally um, unhealthy situation. That's really, that's really the growth. Yeah. But to not have, to not let the shame of being in an imperfect situation keep you from getting the help and moving forward, you know, what what's going to help you grow because the shame is such a, can be such a, a showstopper. Absolutely. I mean, and I, I, I can totally understand why and how that shame could be a showstopper, you know, because of like people like the old me (laughs) prior to those realizations who aren't aware and don't understand and say things like, well, why doesn't she just leave? You know, because I mean, of course I would 
never say or think something like that now that I understand it right but back then I was just like why did she not leave and there's obviously a lot of people out there who maybe don't understand it and do think that way but what's important for anybody listening to know is that there is even more people out there who do understand Mm -hmm. yes and And those are the people to connect with right and to have the self-compassion yeah you know that it's okay that I'm doing the best that I can do yeah and that's just what I'm going to do is the best that I can do and I I really love that because I think for a lot of women who maybe been in that situation or even in terms of not necessarily abuse but for example chronic pain or chronic illness in the body Mm -hmm. a lot of women who I work with and again something I've experienced myself is why didn't I leave sooner or Mm -hmm. why didn't I fix this problem sooner or why can't I like get up and just force myself to do these things or um why can't I get to the gym today like when my body is in agony you know like why can't I just force myself to do these things um or like even why isn't my body cooperating with me like um and I think that's where like you were saying the self-compassion is Mm -hmm. really really important and recognizing that we're doing the best that you can in each and to not compare yourself to these expectations of what you think you should be doing in that moment because everybody deals with things in different ways everybody is at a different stage in their processing journey and their healing journey Mm -hmm. and so um it's not fair to compare yourself and it's fair to put these unrealistic expectations on yourself of like how quickly you should heal Right. Yeah. They're, they're slow is the new fast. That's the motto on healing. And the other thing, when it comes to things like you were saying, why can't I go to the gym today? Or why can't I do this today? It, it intertwines with uh, self-compassion. And when you're determined to heal, and this is part of what I do when I work with people is identifying what are the things that really work well for you. So some people will say, I, I should go to the gym, but the gym, just it doesn't click with them. Yeah. And other people, they're like, I love going to the gym. I don't know why I don't go. Mm-hmm. And when people say, I, I love you know going to the gym, then you, you start working with, well, this is a positive event for you. Let's see how we can work it into your life and start building into these, into your, your, your life, into your daily actions, weekly actions, these things that you know are positive. But if it's not working for you, let's not let's not be, you know, trying to push the boulder uphill and saying, well, this should work. You've got to find, you know, that's what, that's part of the work is finding what, what clicks for each individual and then slowly take that on without judgment, letting the shame settle down and keeping the, noticing the, the success, noticing, Hey, I went to the gym last week or I went two days this week and really celebrating that because we don't celebrate our wins enough either i think in in our culture and just in general we're we're designed our our nervous system again is wired to look for the negative right to look for the danger so we can stay safe but 
when we're moving forward, it's really helpful to look for the wins and to celebrate them, even if it's just telling somebody and saying, I did it. I feel so great. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, that's something that I always get my clients and my community to do, you know, is to um, celebrate, like even just the tiny little things that seem insignificant. And we all then can celebrate it together and celebrate each other. And because like you said, it's easy to think, okay, so I was going to do five different things this week and I only got one of them done. Like I didn't get four things done this week. Oh my goodness. Like I'm a failure. I'm crap at this. Why can't I be like all of the other women who can get five things done in a week? Instead Mm -hmm. of realizing, reframing that and realizing like, I got one thing done this week. And that's amazing because last week I got no things done, you know, so I'm moving forward. Right. And chances are you probably got more than that one thing done and didn't even notice. Yes, exactly. You know, you you get, you don't, sometimes you don't give yourself credit for things that become second nature, but they really are still significant. They're still accomplishments. Yeah, absolutely. And I really want to kind of come back to you. And I really enjoyed what you said, because again, this is something that I'm really big on with my clients is finding what clicks for them and finding what works for you because this is something especially in the world of social media which I mean I love social media by the way you know I'm not against it I love it it's been amazing and for me even on a personal level as well as professional level but I think in the world of social media it's very easy to see what other people appear to be doing and thinking I should be doing that as well Um, And one that I laugh about is, and it works for a lot of people, definitely not for me, but you know, it's like the 5am club, um, Uh getting up at five o'clock in the morning to be really productive and stuff. And I'm just like, I am not a morning person. I'm never going to get up at five o'clock in the morning, unless it's to go to the airport. (laughs) You Mm -hmm. know, that's the only time I'm going to get up that early. But a lot of, um, you know, there's this big like community almost around it online and I've had a couple of clients like saying to me like oh I know I'll be more productive if I get up at five o'clock because everybody's doing it you know but Mm -hmm. I feel horrible then my partner's going to bed at a different time for me so my sleep is broken and stuff and I'm like well why why are you doing that you know don't don't do that then um you've still got the same amount of hours in the day if you get up at nine o'clock and go to sleep at, yeah, you know, 11 or something. So if it's causing disruption to your sleep, if it's causing disconnection from your partner, because you're going to bed at different times, if you feel awful, if you've got a headache, then just stop doing it. Just get up at nine o'clock. Right. You know, if that works for you, then do that. Um, don't think that just because everybody's doing it or because you've heard that it has mm-hmm. all of these amazing benefits that you have to force yourself into doing that and then feeling bad when it doesn't work for you. Right. It's really important to check in to your own feelings and your own life goals and see what's working. You can try things out. You can try the 5 a.m. club out. And if you find it doesn't work for you, you get to let it go. Exactly. Yeah. And really accepting and sinking into the, the feeling of first making the choice to let it go and then letting it go without regret those are those can be huge hurdles to get over but they're those are really 
that's a really it's a classic example of how you can practice that. And realizing that it's okay to try something out and then decide it's not for you. Because I think there can be a lot of shame no. in that as well, you know, especially mm-hmm. if you've maybe told your family or your friends, you know, like I'm going to get up at five o'clock from now on, or I'm going to go to this new gym or this new class or something like that. Yeah. And then saying like, oh, actually, I, I stopped going there. There can be this sense of like, yeah. I failed or I shamed or maybe they're judging me. When in actual right. fact, it's perfectly okay to just be like, no, I wasn't enjoying that. So I'm not doing yeah. it anymore. Or it doesn't work. Sometimes like you want to, you know, the spirit is willing. Uh, so for a while in that same type of category, actually, I, I've i taught uh, group exercise classes for many years on and off. And there was a time where somebody asked me, you know, hey, do you want to teach my 530 a.m. class? And I'm not a morning person either. And I said, all right, I'm going to give it a go. I'm going to try this, you know, once a week. And I'm like, okay, how bad can it be, right? Well, every night before when I would go to bed, when I had to teach in the morning, I would have nightmares all night. Like things like there was the classic one I remember, there was a tree down in my driveway and I couldn't get to the 5.30 a.m. class, you know? <laughs> so I wake up at like 4, 4.35, you know, like I'm just waking up in the night. And I was like, you know, finally I said, I, I can't do this. My, my body and my brain are just not cooperating. And, but I, I gave it a fair shot because it sounds like a great idea, but you know what? My body's not on board. I'm going to let it go. And listening to those signals yes. from your body is yeah. so important, but it's, I mean, it's a huge part of the healing journey. Yes. You know, I mean, it's something that, especially for complex trauma, we've often over time, like disconnected from the signals of our body, you know, or maybe we've like... Mm-hmm over overwritten those signals from our body and said like yeah I hear you but I'm not going to listen today um and you know for example that could look like I mean something in my life was the corporate environment you know Mm -hmm. it really really wasn't for me and I'd be drinking lots of coffee every day taking lots of painkillers every day um you know not resting not giving myself time to slow down and to nourish and my body was screaming at me. Yeah. Oh, more coffee, more painkillers, you know. And this yeah. was like got, got to the point where it became so unbearable. You know, I was having these really, really terrible migraines where mm-hmm. I'd have to go home from work and just lie down in bed in the dark for several hours just to begin mm-hmm. to even feel normal again. You know, yeah. and at the time, what's interesting is I remember going to the doctor and the doctor just kept saying to me, like, this is stress. This is stress. Right. And he going, well, I'm not that stressed. So or, like, you're not correct yet, you know, yeah. to the doctor. Like, stop saying stress to me. I'm not that stressed. Right. Now, looking back, I know that, oh, my goodness, I was deeply stressed. And right. I was deeply, like, dysregulated and disconnected. Mm-hmm. from my body um but it wasn't helpful for me for the doctor to just say this right. is stress this is stress because right it almost made me feel like he's he's not believing what I'm telling him or he's maybe discrediting what I'm telling him whereas now I understand but at the time it wasn't helpful yeah so the medical community in general and I worked, so I worked in med- online medical education for a few years as well. And I met with physicians all the time. And what I found interesting is we had in, in our medical education content, we actually had an entire section on trauma-informed care. 
And this is because, generally speaking, physicians are not trained on how to be a, a trauma-informed practitioner. Again, this is a product of the culture because we are talking about people who are incredibly motivated to help people heal, right? This is their life mission. And these people are, I mean, everyone I met, they're so passionate about helping people get better. But without the knowledge of understanding this is a trauma response, for example, or this could be a trauma response, or maybe there's complex trauma here below the surface and let's try this approach or let's, you know, let's do what's called a, I'm sure you're familiar with the, the ACEs questionnaire, you know, a physician could say, let's try the ACEs questionnaire. I, I would imagine, you know, I'm sure that's in their, in their um, toolkit and say, maybe we're dealing with the effects of complex trauma and we might need a different approach and might need a different referral. And how can we do this? And how can I interact with a patient? That's another thing is the behaviors and, uh, you know, the, the, the narration sometimes of medical procedures is, can be trauma informed. If you know, somebody has a history of a certain type of trauma, there's a lot that goes into trauma informed care. And it's not, it's not generally taught in medical school as a, as a part of, you know, what they're learning. So that's, so again, finding, finding healing, uh, you know, healing advocates outside of the standard system becomes kind of, I think, the norm. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's that's what really made a difference for me on my journey because I definitely lost a lot of trust in, you know, my healthcare providers because of those situations where I'd go and I'd explain and I, I'd think to myself, this person's not understanding me. Like, they just it, it's just not connecting you know yeah. um and maybe the advice or the solutions that they're giving me like they don't really understand what's happening to me right now they don't understand how deep this goes or the level of it or I mean even for example I remember when I first had the courage to go to the doctor and tell them about my panic attacks and dissociation because that was a really big step for me. I was really fearful of, um, I thought they were going to lock me up and throw away the key. You know, right. I thought, um, oh my goodness, if I go to the doctors and tell them what is happening to me, I'm mm -hmm. going to get put into a hospital. Um, and then they're going to like force medicate me. You know, I had told myself these elaborate stories of what was going to happen. And, but yeah. eventually I ended up at the doctors and, he first, I mean, first of all, he he said, like, look, what you're experiencing is and um, panic attacks, what you're experiencing is dissociation. Like, don't mm -hmm. worry, you're not crazy. So that was really powerful for me to be like, yeah. thank God, first of all, right. that like he's telling me this is okay. Like it's it's I mean, not normal, but it's it's common, you know, it's not right. some crazy thing. Um, like I like I think it is, but then is kind of he said to me okay I'm going to give you some medication to take um and you can take this home it's going to take a couple of weeks for it to have an effect and stuff and like as soon as he said that to me I I just something inside of me was like but well, he, he's not going to ask me about mm -hmm. what I've been through right 
I was like, he's he's giving me this and sending me home. Yeah. But I need to tell somebody. Yeah. Like I need somebody to to validate and to listen right. to my experience. Like I I don't think this medication is the solution that I need right now. I need somebody to listen to me and to say like, yeah, what happened to you is bad, you know? Yeah. Um. And and that for me, unfortunately. Um, because I know obviously like healthcare providers and GPs, they are amazing in one right. respect, but then like you said, they're not getting taught trauma-informed right. approaches. They're not getting taught how to deal with somebody who's experienced complex trauma. And so what can happen from that, which have definitely happened to me, is it can create this lack of trust mm-hmm. in right going to the doctors even and in the healthcare system right because it's they're not it's like you know they're not understanding it's a and it's a valid lack of trust because you're not being seen or heard and what you're seeking beyond you know the a solution so to speak is to be seen and heard because you weren't as a child and we generally need that as human beings anyway but definitely when we're dealing with the effects of the past, you know, coming up in the present. And like, is there a particular reason why, like to your knowledge, um, I know this is a big question I'm asking, um, okay. but like, why isn't trauma-informed care or approaches, like, why is that not common in like in practice in any right. practice where you're working with people like why isn't that the norm is it that I, we're so still I, understanding yeah. complex trauma or so I think this is entirely my opinion so I'll say that first but I think it's multifaceted for one thing we like to be a, a quick fix society you have a panic attack here's medication that will help Another thing is unpacking complex trauma, going to the root cause. It's very complicated. It takes a very long time. And there's not a lot of, you're not, so if you're treating something with a drug, you know, a prescription medication, you have pharmaceuticals that are making money off of it, that are motivated to keep making prescription drugs. But if you're saying, I want to deal with my complex trauma organically, nobody's going to make a million dollars off of that. It's it's kind of, it's kind of disheartening that you're not like kind of told of, like you have to find out that there is another approach on your own, Mm -hmm. you know, like the doctor won't explain to you that there actually is another approach, but it'll take longer and you have to find what works for you. You have to experiment and explore and you have to connect with the kind of people in the trauma informed space. Um, yeah. but you, you're not even kind of told or made aware that there's other options you have to find that out on your own which I think is very yeah important. yeah that's that is the reality of it is you kind of have to poke around till you find the right thing and then there's you know figuring out what the right thing is and who the right person is to work with uh and all of that and the other thing I wanted to add too <clears throat> regarding you know why aren't we doing more about complex trauma we're just like really scratching the surface and understanding it. So we now know that complex trauma is kind of coded in the nervous system. And that's a fairly new 
understanding. We can do brain scans now that can show types of, um, you know, emotional overreactivity, for example. You can see that if you do a, a brain scan and you can understand this is what came out of, uh, you know, a traumatic childhood. You can do a before and an after scan. After doing whatever the healing method is, you can say, this is what my brain looks like now. So we didn't always have that. And so it takes time to switch from the old way of doing things, which was basically just talk therapy, you know, if there's stuff and, and medication to the new way, which is we can work with the body, with the nervous system, with the whole person's, you know, with their belief systems and how they, their worldview and how they, their learning style, what all of these different things, This and these are the things that part of what I do when I work with people is going through these different aspects of of who you are so it takes time and it takes extra energy and that's why i think people are hesitant to go and recommend that and say well you know i know you're having panic attacks you should go to therapy for three years and you'll feel better or here's a prescription yeah yeah and something that i've been thinking on recently in relation to this what we're talking about I'd love to know what you think, is that almost what we are going through with this, so that experience of, you know, up until this point, it's just like, give them a pill because that's a quick fix. Mm-hmm. To me, that that almost kind of reflects the healing cycle within our own lives, you know, and that maybe this point that we are at collectively now of like, you know, just give them a pill, that's a quick fix, is just survival. Yes. You know, it's it like just surviving. Like, this is a quick fix. It'll help yes. you to survive. It'll help you to get through the day. It'll help you right. to not feel like that. Whereas maybe we're beginning, as we understand more about complex trauma and as the world mm-hmm. grows and develops, maybe we're beginning to emerge from that like survival mode collectively from past trauma. And we're yeah. maybe beginning to move into like, okay, but how can we actually thrive? Right. You know, right. How can we actually like feel good and not just get through the day? Right. And then that maybe that's that's what um kind of where more complex trauma and trauma informed approaches are beginning to really open up and be explored. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And to make a space for that in the culture yeah. is important. To say this is a, a bigger a bigger creature to deal with yeah. and we should make the time and the space and the energy and the funding available for that. Absolutely. So there is, there's definitely a place. I, I I believe there's definitely still, and I think people would agree. There's a time and a place where, you you know, medication is the answer, but typically it's not a long-term solution. It's a, it's a stopgap. It's going to fix things. You were saying like it is survival. Uh, But I, again, I don't want anybody to ever feel shame about even if they take medication for a long time, for years, because what you're doing is the absolute best you can do. And that's, that's so important. Absolutely. And And, I mean, what works for one person doesn't necessarily mean that'll work for the next person. We are all on our own journey. And for some people that journey might include medication and for some people it might not. Um, And either way, I mean, that's okay. But also Mm -hmm. in the reverse, you know, is that we don't want people to be shamed for trying 
approaches that are considered alternative or a little right. bit out there, you know. Right. Um, and one thing that I've really enjoyed recently actually is hearing Prince Harry talk about using, mm -hmm. you know, the ED EMDR. Yeah, EMDR. Um, it's eye movement desensitization and reprocessing because yeah. anybody wants to go look it up. Yes. Yeah, I mean, it's amazing because I've, I've actually used that. So I yes. had sessions of that a while back and just found it amazing. Yes. And but when I tried explaining to people what it involved and what right. it actually did, the looks that I would get sometimes from people as if to be like, mm -hmm. what are you talking right. about? You know, because it does sound a little bit out there, you know, you're holding... Yeah. I mean, you're holding two kind of vibration pads in each hand and they're mm -hmm. one vibrating at different times. And then you've got these headphones on that are making sounds and then you're moving your eyes mm -hmm. from left to, to right while you think about like a certain experience, right. a moment or pain in the body or whatever it is that you're working on. Apologies, my cat. <laughs> and over time... Um, you know, it's it's almost like kind of working through that or desensitizing yourself to that really strong reaction or feeling. But I remember, because it was a long time ago, I had that now, and I remember trying to explain it to people, and it mm -hmm. just, it sounded it sounded mad even as I was yes. saying, you know. Yes. Whereas now to hear like really really public figures, yes. Um, I mean to hear a prince who you consider to be kind of like this really like straight and maybe yes. linear person to then say that actually I've done this and it was really right. powerful and really, really helped me. I think that that's really important for yes. like normalizing different approaches and normalizing, allowing people to try something that sounds a little bit out there. Right. Well, the, the, and I, I agree with you hundred percent. So I think it's absolutely fantastic that Prince Harry came forward about EMDR. It It's probably going to save so many people because he has such a, a large audience. Um, he, he has such, you know, a large, a large audience and he's respected. My own experience of healing had a lot to do with EMDR as well. And so because of that, trying to explain it to, to people, I, I ran into the same issue. And what I began to understand, so it made me dive more into it. And that's why I'm doing the work I do now. I had to understand, understand, understand. And the way that I, I can describe it most succinctly is when you have a, a, a trigger from the past, the emotional part of your brain, the survival part of your brain, it, it's in the middle of the brain and it goes on overload. And when it goes on overload, your thinking brain, which is like the 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 bigger part of, you know, your the top part the last part to be developed in um evolution or whatnot you know the the thinking part where we're rational and we can figure things out it goes offline so we we go we intentionally go into that emotional overdrive state and we do these things like you were describing the the, the back and forth hand or eye movements and it makes the the neural circuits go back and forth and you're short circuiting that emotional loop and suddenly the whole brain can come online. Yeah. And that's how I would describe it to people sometimes, depending on who I was talking to. It's really hard to describe yes. because it, it sounded crazy to me when I started it. And I, I was 
this is where people pleasing came in handy for me because I was a big people pleaser. Yeah. And I was like, well, I'm just going to do what the therapist said because he seems to know everything and I know nothing. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it was kind of that approach. And I just feel lucky that that led me to where I needed to go. It really, really worked. So I'm glad you had experience with the EMDR as well. Oh, it was amazing. And I think as well, I'd love to encourage, you know, everybody who's listening. That's why it's so important to listen to your own body and what's working for you and what feels right or feels good for you rather than what other people are telling you is kind of or what you think might you know would be the expectation you know because for some people medication is the right choice for some people um you know holistic or alternative therapies are the right choice for some people it's a combination of the two And there's actually no right or wrong answer. There's no one size Mm -hmm. fits all answer. And oftentimes when you're on this journey, like there will be times where people think you're a little bit mad for the treatments that you're trying or the approach that you're doing. And that's perfectly okay as long as that's what feels right for you or that's what you... um, you know, trust, or that's what you even just want to try and want to experience, then that's okay. Yeah. And having, having perspective on everything is really helpful. So one of the things when you're trying things out, you don't always know, well, is this, what is, how does this fit into the big picture? You know, and the beauty of working with anybody who's been on, who's done just, you know, a large quantity of healing work, however that happened they're able to give perspective say yes this is this is kind of how it all fits together and this is where this can come in and this is where that piece can come in and um that's something i did not have when i started out i started out completely blind i said i'm just going in beginner's mind i didn't read anything about emdr i didn't you know didn't research it i just said i i don't know this is crazy and and i just did it <laughs> i was the same i had no idea uh... yeah I mean, that was, for me, that was the same with most things that I did mm-hmm. or tried. I really was kind of just, um, like I said, that desperation of just like, yeah, I'll try anything right. at this stage, you know, and yeah. just hope that it works. And so yeah. sometimes like people would suggest it to me or like a different thing to me. And I'd be like, yeah, I'm going to try that. Or right. I just see something online you know of like a certain Mm -hmm. treatment and I'd be like okay I'm gonna try this you know and there was a lot of stuff that I tried and I was like that's actually not for me yeah it can take it can take a long time and it can get expensive when you keep trying that's yeah uh, but there's you know there's also stuff that I did and I was like oh my goodness yes god that I found this exactly yeah exactly so it's really it's it's a I guess it it can go either way, right? You try, I don't I tried, I had, I tried so many healing modalities and looking back, it's like, man, I wish I just had a better understanding of what was going to help me. Yeah. Yeah. That was the thing is I didn't understand what, even what direction I should go in. I just kept it, you know, it's like, what is it? Throwing, throwing noodles on the wall to see what sticks. Yeah. Right. Absolutely. I mean, and I think as well, something that's kind of coming up for anybody who's listening, I just really want to maybe get across because like you were saying, 
that can be expensive and it can be time yes. consuming to be trying all of these different things. I mean, first of all, that's why I do this podcast, you know, so right. to help give people an awareness of different healing modalities or different directions or even just some insight. But also one thing I'd really like to kind of talk to you on is like, don't wait. People don't have to wait yeah. until they are like healed Mm-hmm. you know and um, because we think of like okay when I'm healed I can do this but that's not what the healing like healing is a journey healing is a right. long unfolding process um, and it's a lot of trial and error it's a lot of experimentation yeah. and experiencing new things and so you don't have to wait until you are at this like imaginary healed place before you actually start living and enjoying your life or before mm-hmm. you start even living and enjoying your body right. or your relationships. Uh, yeah, I agree. It all it all happens at the same time. And the other thing is you don't have to wait till some perfect point in time to start healing. Yeah. You know, so. that's something else. I'm. There's a lot of the sense of, well, all my ducks have to be lined up in a row and I have to have exactly the right amount of time and the right amount of space. And I can't be too busy with this or that. And it's more of this is, you know, if you can do this while life is hectic, then you can do this all the time. Yeah. And I think as well, like, for example, something that really was powerful for me is realizing that I could actually still like have fun or laugh or Mm -hmm enjoy doing things yes even when I felt like shit yes so even when I felt absolutely terrible in my physical body in my you know mental body um but realizing that actually I could still have those like moments of hysterical laughter Mm -hmm. or I could still have those moments of deep connection or I could still have a day where I go out and have like such an amazing day and then get back home and be like almost like who was that today you know because I didn't even know that it was possible for me to laugh so much or to have fun like that yeah to allow yourself to get to be who you are yeah exactly because that can be a powerful healing practice in itself you know is like enjoying yourself and enjoying your life outside of always Mm -hmm. focusing on healing. Right. Agreed. Yeah. You don't have to say, well, I'm, I'm healing now. I, it's very serious work. I have to take a very focus a lot on it and it's very dark and very scary. It's like, well, no, go out and, you know, go dancing with your friends. Like yeah, it's good. exactly. Because I mean, I did that for a long time. I was really serious about yeah. it, you know. And like, I swear, I didn't laugh or smile for at least a couple of years. <laughs> right. It wasn't until like, um, I began to like really like laugh and enjoy myself and almost be playful mm-hmm. again. Um, and like kind of just almost childlike in that playfulness again that I realized like, oh my god, wow, like this moment actually feels more healing for me than a lot of the healing work that I've been doing you know because it's almost it was almost like connecting to a part of myself that I just didn't know existed anymore Mm -hmm. absolutely yeah 
So I would love to, and um, this has been absolutely amazing. And I'm sure that the women who are listening are going to want to connect with you further. Yes. So first of all, I know that you have an offering that you'd like to share with the listeners. So can you start off by sharing that offering and just telling them a little bit sure. about where it is and how they can avail of it? Absolutely. So again, my name is Ariana Zeminski and uh, my business is called Hello Trauma. So you can find me at hellotrauma.com. And the offer I'm putting out there to listeners today is if you have a question, I, I do my work virtually for the most part. So if you have a question that you'd like to connect with me on via Zoom or via phone call, whatever's more comfortable for you, you can go to my website, hellotrauma.com and type in uh, after hellotrauma.com forward slash and the word question. And you will find a form there and uh, a way that you can make a time with me to ask me a question. I'll give you about, usually it's about 15, 30 minutes or so. If you have one specific question that you would like to ask me via Zoom or via a phone call, you can sign up there for free and we will connect that way. I also uh, offer uh, discovery calls on my website. So you'll see those too, or if you just want to contact me, but uh if you have one specific thing to say, this is just burning and I really want to know. And, you know, I heard all these other things that they talked about, but this thing wasn't covered. And I want to ask, then you, you have that opportunity. Amazing. Thank you so much. And then for anybody who would just like to follow or connect with you or see more about you and your work, where can they find you? That is, again, my website leads to it all. So hellotrauma.com, you'll, you'll find all of the, the links to my socials. Uh, on the bottom of the website, the little icons. And I post pretty frequently on Instagram. Uh, I'm also on TikTok and uh, Facebook. I have a, a Facebook page for Hello Trauma as well, where I post uh, videos and, and information also. Perfect. Thank you so much. So for anybody listening, I will pop those links for you in the description. Um, and just once again, thank you so much for joining us today. I really, really enjoyed that. And I'm sure that everybody who's listening did as well. So thank you. Yes, thank you very much as well. It's been a wonderful connecting with you. Thank you so much. Bye. Bye-bye.